You know what the worst feeling in the world is? You probably don't need me to tell you. It's feeling that things are not right. I mean, cosmically not right. That things are not as they should be. That you're not where you're supposed to be. It's feeling like the person that you dreamed of becoming is just slipping away. Like a mirage vanishing over the horizon. Like the meaning of your life has just, just kind of slowly been bleached out of the picture. I know. I've been there many, many times. And it sucks. In many ways, it sucks far worse than any external hardship. Nietzsche once remarked that he who has a why to live can bear almost anyhow. And it's true. But without purpose, without meaning, what use are the comforts of modern life? As a young man, I spent a lot of time traveling in India and Nepal. I met countless people who had nothing at all in the world, and I mean true, heartbreaking poverty, the kind we're not even exposed to here, but people who yet somehow had everything because they had a sense of meaning, a sense of transcendent connection to the universe. But when I returned to America, suddenly it, it just seemed like a living graveyard to me, a country with all the material comforts in the world, and yet where people are hollow and empty and sick inside and miserable. That's true poverty. And that's why I've dedicated my life to bringing the true techniques of true spirituality to the world. Everything from Western magic to Eastern yoga to Buddhism and a lot a lot more, and I believe me, a lot more. I spent decades putting this together. I've collected the very best of the best at magic.me, my online school for magic, mysticism, and meditation. Because I don't just want you to live your best life, I want you to have your soul back, your true self, your true will, your very reason for existing. Magic.me is an online school that gives you everything that you need to master your mind and thereby master your life. That's because it clearly and directly presents the very best techniques of magic, meditation, ritual, and consciousness change from the world's spiritual and esoteric traditions. And what that really means is that you get millennia of spiritual training all in one place and in one structured training system. It is literally the best magical training in the world. Magic.me downloads those raw techniques right into your brain. You can flash upgrade yourself by learning chaos magic, meditation, esoteric yoga, the tarot, I Ching, astral projection, how to achieve peak mental and physical energy, how to unlock your true will, and lots, lots more. That means you get all of these techniques right now without having to wade through piles of confusing books written by people who probably, frankly, never practiced what they preached. And that means that you are literally one week away from becoming a full-on, geared-up, practicing magician, gaining full control of your life and absolute clarity on your true will. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking that sounds amazing, but I, I just don't have the time for that, unfortunately. Well, good news. Magic.me is constructed in small, bite-sized, five-minute units that you can watch on your own schedule, even during a bathroom break at work. You know, the extra long ones that you take just to get away from your boss and coworkers for half a second. Plus, instead of spending decades and literally over hundreds of thousands of dollars to learn this material by trial and error, as I did, 
Magic.me hands you the keys to everything for only $49 a month. Yearly and lifetime packages are even more generous. And not only do you get access to every class, but you also get access to the Magician's Workshop, which guides you through a structured course of study to master every skill in detail, step by step. You also get access to our bi-weekly live sessions, where I help students one-on-one -on -one and guide them through any challenges they may be having in their practice or blockages they may be having in their life. You'll also get access to our private community, where you'll be able to hang out with, learn from, and collaborate with other students on the path. Of course, it goes without saying that all this comes with a full money-back guarantee, so that you can try it out and see if it's for you. If it's not, that's fine. I'll fully refund your money, no questions asked, as long as it's in line with the terms on the site. Although, frankly, nobody ever takes me up on that offer. They're just too blown away by the tremendous amount of valuable information and truly life-changing experiences that they find waiting for them. Magic.me is the very model of what a 21st century magical school should look like, and my students love it. Sound good? Okay. You can start learning right now at www.magic.me. That's M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. I'll see you in class. My guest today is the author Eric Davis, who I will introduce in the intro to this show. There were unfortunately several technical errors with this show, which I apologize for. And also to Eric, uh, this has been almost three months since I recorded the interview. I have done my best to uh, fix the uh, recording issues, which were caused by the fact that I was trying to turn this into a video interview and that didn't uh, go as planned, unfortunately. So the audio is not as great as I would like it to be, um, but the information is great and I hope you really enjoy the show. Eric Davis is an author, podcaster, award-winning journalist, and independent scholar based in San Francisco. His wide-ranging work focuses on the intersection of alternative religion, media, and the popular imagination. He is the author, most recently, of Nomad Codes, Adventures in Modern Esoterica. He also wrote The Visionary State, A Journey Through California's Spiritual Landscape, a short critical volume on Led Zeppelin, and the much-celebrated Technosis, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information, which is still in print after 20 years. That's awesome. Eric's scholarly and popular essays on music, technoculture, and spirituality have appeared in scores of books, magazines, and journals, and his writing has been translated into a dozen languages. That's amazing. He explores the cultures of consciousness on his long-running weekly podcast, Expanding Mind, on the Progressive Radio Network, and he has been interviewed for numerous documentaries and by CNN, the BBC, Public Radio, and the New York Times. And I saw you also used to write for the much-missed Village Voice. It was very yes. sad when that closed down. He graduated from Yale University, served as a rock critic for many years, and earned his PhD in religious studies at Rice University. His forthcoming book, High Weirdness, Drugs, Esoterica, and Visionary Experience in the 70s, will be out in the spring of 2019 through MIT Press and Strange Attractor. Oh, that's awesome. You're working with... Um, Mark Pilkington. Oh, yeah. How's he doing? He's great. You know, he's an old, he's an old pal of mine. He, 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 I think we met in 01 or 02 uh, and, and became fast friends right away. And it's been incredibly satisfying to work on this uh, huge project. You know, years and years and years went into this book. 
uh, boiled down. It was a dissertation. Now it's a book. And to be able to produce the book with my friend in the in the very like independent small press sense that I have incredible input on the cover, on the design, on how the footnotes are laid out, all these sort of itty bitty things that you don't get with a, a big publisher. And then at the same time, MIT Press was interested in in co-publishing it. So it, it uses their, their, uh, sales system, their marketing and their, you know, kind of official stamp of, uh, you know, uh, class. <laughs> so it's a great combo for me. It really, it really just worked out. I couldn't be happier. So maybe if you could give us a little, uh, teaser or a little preview of, or just, you know, uh, start off with what, where your mind's been at. Sure. Sure. Well, the main thing that, that, that I, that I like to kind of present about it uh, overall is just the idea. Uh, one thing that I tr try to do right from the beginning is to um, establish that the idea of the weird is m a more substantial category than we normally take it for, uh, that it doesn't just refer to a kind of you know, it's funny when you think about it, it's, it's the, the weird is one of those words where it's sort of it's kind of hiding in plain sight. It's not something we take seriously very much in the way that we use it. But if you kind of pay close attention and track it, you start to see that there's a larger kind of worldview opening up. And that's something I try to kind of establish as a way into my subject matter, which happens to be the crazy, mostly psychedelic experiences of some famous white guys, uh, dead white guys in the 1970s. So that's the kind of core thing that I'm looking at historically, culturally, uh, philosophically. How do we think about these weird experiences? But I really start off with the weird because even like normies, <laughs> you know, will use the word and you use the word to, to describe something you can't quite put somewhere. Or if you have like, like if you're not a believer in synchronicity, but then you, some strange synchronicity happens to you telling someone, yeah. And then I said, bike, just as this bike went by and, and, you know, then my friend came in and told me about this other, but whatever it is, I know that was never, not a very good one, but, uh, you know, people go, yeah, it was, it was really weird. You know, it's like weird. It's like weird becomes the sort of place where you put things that are unusual or anomalous, but you're not making any claims about them. You're not saying it was paranormal. It was mystical. It was supernatural. You know, no, you don't need to say that. You just need to kind of go, well, was it was pretty weird. Like it was weird or kind of like the a liminal zone, like where it's yeah. just at the periphery of awareness, but not enough to set off any alarm bells or, or break your normal daily trance. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it is also a way to just kind of put something somewhere that it's not too threatening. And we all kind of acknowledge that, that, that it exists. It almost shares with the, with the icky or something. It's just kind of like, ah, this is kind of weird. But then when you go into it, you go, well, where, where does this word come from? What, what is its history? How does it, how does it feature? And the, the kind of the most obvious way we, we think about it now is in terms of weird as a genre, you know, as a, as a quality of a certain kind of fantasy, a certain kind of science fiction, certain kind of uh, pop culture, certain kind of exploitation fair, you know, uh, co comic books were, were the sites of the weird, uh, hot, you know, designs for hot rods or uh, indeed things like Weird Tales, which is, of course, where we get Lovecraft and and Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard. So that's th so then you're like, OK, great. It's also kind of an aesthetic, which is sort of like 
supernatural or uncanny, but also kind of pulp and a little cheesy or a little over the top, a little adolescent, a little greasy kid stuff. And, and to my mind, that all actually protects something that's actually really kind of profound and interesting. And then you go back and you start going, well, where does this word come from? How does it develop? And we go back to Shakespeare and you go back to the idea of fate uh, and the, the weird sisters. And, and you find that it's, a, it's actually a very, very rich, interesting uh, word that kind of goes into our poetry. It goes into the, to this kind of aesthetic world. So on one hand, the weird is an aesthetic world. And if it's just, you know, but if I was just talking about the aesthetic side of it, the way it's kind of like, uh, you know, like Lovecraft or some weird fiction or some weird TV show that you've seen that you kind of like or whatever, that would only be so interesting. Uh, but it's all, it's more than that. It's also a social position that people are weirdos. And it's not a necessarily a great thing to be a weirdo. And it's been a, you know, a feature of like 20th century counterculture where like weirdos, weirdo meant sometimes a little bit of a per pervert even, but it was definitely somebody you didn't want to hang around. Like it wasn't like, oh, he's a rebel or, you know, like, you know like, what I mean? like, like, our, like, uh, our crumb or something like that. Well, it's great. Our, our crumb, you know, makes this, uh, comic, uh, you know, collection magazine, weirdo i think that starts in the very early 80s and that kind of captures it it's on the one hand there's like you know strange esoteric things and then there's like street uh underground comics and there's kind of quotidian tales of sort of outlandish characters or harvey Picar and things like that and it all just kind of captures that the weird the weird is not just an aesthetic but it's also a kind of social position that has to do with the counterculture but then finally and this is what makes it interesting is the third the third uh prong of my witch's cauldron um, is the in a way the most important one which is that it's it's a, it's an ontological space meaning that there's something about reality that is weird or weirdness is a way into an aspect of how things are and I talk about this in a lot of ways a part of it is like where do you put pa the paranormal if you don't want to make a claim about some other source, or even to use the language of the paranormal, the weird is a place to do it. But more importantly, because it's not socially threatening. It's not socially threatening. Exactly. It does not make you not out, kind of like outing yourself as a believer, uh, which, you know, I, I think is fine to be, a, you know, into the paranormal in, in its own terms. So it's a bit but I think functions that, kind of like ironic distance. Yeah. Yeah. I think it does. It does. But, but again, it conceals this possibility that without making any supernatural claims, nothing about some elaborate metaphysical cosmos or other planes of being or anything like that. It's saying that there's things in reality, just reality as it is, that are profoundly anomalous, strange, vaguely wonderful, but also kind of ominous and, and threatening and a little icky. And the place that that I really thought that was significant was tracing where in the discourse of physics that people started to talk about quantum weirdness. Like where did that phrase, we know it. It's like it's, it's a common use in pop culture or in pop science too. Even scientists will use it. Where did it come from? Why, what is it there for? What is it kind of saying? And of course, it's saying something we all know, those of us who are interested in physics and quantum physics, even if we're just, you know, guys in the peanut gallery, we know that it's saying that now, however you interpret it, 
and there's a lot of different ways to interpret quantum physics. It's it shows that reality is functioning very differently than our ordinary naive realism takes it to to Definitely. be. That's really I, I I love how you put that. And the thing I want to zero in on there, because I've I've thought it many times and wrestled with it quite a bit in my life, is this idea you articulated about about weirdness and this kind of cultural space being a protective capsule in a way, or a, a liminal zone or a protective zone. And for instance, when I was first getting into all this stuff, I think I first started getting into all this stuff in my teens, my early teens, when I was working in a bookstore before I could actually legally work, I was already working in a bookstore. And I was just reading all this counterculture stuff. And so I became, you know, like caught up in the, the, um, you know, the carny type miasma of the counterculture. And there was like everything you're talking about, you know, like the Ed Big Daddy Roth paintings. And at the time, like the Jim Rose, uh, circus sideshow and, um, you know, all the stuff that, uh, that Feral House was putting out at this time, like the whole kind of counterculture kitsch world with like tiki bar aesthetics and, and uh, particularly, you know, you know, California in particular has this. But for me, like it was just like, for me, it was like fighting through a swamp. It's like I wanted to get through that stuff because it didn't really appeal to me that much. And I wanted to, but I noticed I, I zeroed in on the fact that it was kind of like, the outside of the temple, if you will. And somewhere in there was something really, really valuable that was being covered up by this kind of miasmic smokescreen of all this counterculture stuff. And so, you know, when I, I came up with the phrase ultraculture, which was I just wanted to zero in on that stuff and turn that into the focus instead of having the the kitsch barrier. Actually, I think Paul Lawfully, the late Paul Lawfully talks about, talked about at one point, I think in his essay in the Disinfo Book of Lies, the kitsch barrier as kind of like this ontological barrier between um, that would accelerate uh, as we, you know, towards the end of the 20th century and going forward into the 21st century. I don't remember exactly what he but it, what he said about it, but it, it seems resonant with what you're saying here. And it actually, to be completely honest with you, it's, it's become very frustrating uh, for me because, you know, in, you know, certainly talking about occult ideas, I feel like in some ways I feel trapped in that kitsch zone. It's like, I don't necessarily want to be there. But on the other hand, I don't necessarily want, you know, I definitely would rather be there than in the realm of the true believers, right? I mean, you go to some of these things like OTO functions or things like this, and you see people who are true believers. They don't have the kitsch barrier they, or, or just any, you know, fringe religion or hippie alternative movement or, you know, you, you meet people who don't have the ironic distance. It's kind of profoundly disturbing for me. It's like, wait, wait, no, wait, wait hang on. Like you literally 100% believe this. That's, you need some distance here. You need to have the, you know, the Robert Anton Wilson ability to step in and out of it, I think. So, um, I, so I, I think that that's all, uh, um, really well articulated and I'm just mirroring back like, yeah, it's like, that feels like the kind of the thing that I've been wrestling with my whole life. Sure. No, it's, that's very well said. I mean, it's very resonant with my own experience. I mean, I'm a, I'm a notch, you know, farther down the, the, uh, the mortality, uh, you know, ruler than you are, but so wait, wait for my, CRISPR, or, wait for CRISPR. Then, you know, we will, <laughs> some of the, some of us living now may never die. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to feel about that even. That's another question. Uh, 
But, you know, my experience was pretty similar growing up in Southern California and, and, and mine was probably a little, a little bit more the, uh, you know, the, the dregs of the, of the sixties counterculture. Uh, so that hence a, a bit more on the spiritual tip. And then w- later on in the eighties, watching the, the kind of development of the amok books and the, you know, all of the California, the tiki, all that stuff kind of coming together. And, and yeah, I think you're very right. It's like the outside, um, of the temple. And so what I'm what I'm looking at further in the book is I I look at three well-known dead white guys from the 70s, uh Robert Anton Wilson, Timothy, I'm not Tim, I talk about Timothy Leary a little bit, but Terrence McKenna and uh Philip K Dick. And I show how they, you know, they all have these extraordinary experiences in roughly similar period of time 71 to 75 or you know around there. Something in the about, about the early 70s sets this up. Leary has his own starseed transmissions as well. And there's a lot of other things. Lily blah blah blah. We should do like the Mount that's like the Mount Rushmore of the counterculture. We should really should build like a Mount Rushmore that's maybe somewhere on the road to Burning Man, you know. It's wow, like That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, that's great. So I'm I'm just kind of going in there and, and looking at these crazy experiences they have. And I, I'm doing it not as a believer, not even as an ironist particular, but really someone who's like just trying to read it, you know, read it the way you read a difficult poem. Like, how do you understand? Like, what's it going on? What's it drawing from? What are what are its contexts? Uh, what's inventive about it? What's new? What's not new? And so I'm using the kind of weird as a way into looking at things that otherwise you end up talking about them in other frameworks that I'm not as interested in. Like I'm not interested in a purely materialist view where you're just like reducing them to their social conditions and showing how they're drawing from their own experiences and inventing things on the fly, because after all, this is all that cognition does. I do believe that in many ways. I, in, in many ways, I'm, I'm more on the side of a kind of constructivist view where we're sort of building reality out of the materials, historical, biological, physical that we have, rather than it coming down from some ulterior dimension. But I'm, I make room for the weird. I go, I don't know. I'm, it's like it's an open-minded or an open-ended naturalism, a weird naturalism, which I also kind of talk about. And so it gives me a way into these things that is just really fruitful and fun. So I had a lot of fun just going through this. And then I'm a huge fan of the 70s. Like for me, the 70s are just this, the most fascinating, rich decade. I love the music from the 70s. But I also find it, the, 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 long, the more I've thought about it, the more complex and nuanced and and kind of dark uh, the whole period gets, not just on the surface where it's sort of, you know, there's Watergate and the energy crisis, and there's obviously a lot of cheesiness in popular culture. There's a lot of paranoia. There's a, you know, domestic uh, terrorism. You know, it's not the grosiest time. In some ways, it was probably one of the biggest bummer periods in American history, uh, despite the richness of the of the art, um, although a lot of the art is, is also kind of harrowing in some ways. But I increasingly, I I, I came to recognize that this world we're in now, this insane reality undermining postmodern, digitally driven, uh, simulacral network, did you know, uh, sim- kind of mess that we're in. You can draw many of those tendrils back to the 1970s when the ARPANET begins, 
when consumer credit really begins, when the consumer system starts to develop that whole model of like you give consumers credit in order to like satisfy their lifestyle needs in order and then they go on and kind of expand themselves. You have this growing pluralism in American society, which is cool if you're into multiculturalism. Yay, great. But it also goes along with a kind of erosion of tradition of shared norms and also produces this kind of multiplicity of of kind of options. You know, this kind of, you know, there's just a smorgasbord of of subjectivity positions I can consume and put together. And that's really, you know, kind of cool in a lot of ways. But when you intensify it too much and when you throw in the sort of, uh, you know, the the hit the truth's been taking in our current moment, then it all looks a little more ominous and, and confusing. So in the end, I actually see a lot of what uh, these three characters were envisioning in their in their crazy visions as being in some ways, if not prophetic, then at least kind of allegorical or symptomatic of these larger shifts in culture and consciousness that in some ways lead to today. Interesting. Yeah, well, of course, you know, Philip K. Dick is the real, the prophet of alienation in a way, the alienated mindset. And, and I, it's, it's, this is jogging some, some thoughts. I've just been having conversations recently about, um, now I was born in 1981, but just looking at the, what was, what was happening around that time in the end of the seventies. And then of course, in the early eighties, when there was suburbanization, there was the flooding of, because of the energy crisis, there was the flooding of the, of the U S market with cheap cars from first Japan and then, and then Korea. And that people got more and more siloed mm. into their, their suburban bunkers, at least, you know, the, the, the middle class did, you know, and then there was white flight and all these things happened. And, and then people going into gated communities. Of course, this is the territory that, that, you know, Adam Curtis is so uh, profitably mined throughout his, his documentary <laughs> career. Well but, said, but, you know, and now it's even, as he's also pointed out now it's to its, ultimate uh, extreme so far of alienation where we're siloed, not just physically, but by information algorithms. And, you know, even the whole idea of economics is breaking down into the, you know, the idea of blockchain and things like that. And it's amazing how on point Philip K. Dick really was about this. When you were talking about the things, the trends that started in, in the seventies that um, are, coming to fruition in a way now one thing that struck me uh, that occurred to me was leary's whole idea of smile you know space migration intelligence increase life extension and one thing that i really wanted to, to ask you about particularly since you're you're bay area based is and we're now we're kind of having this conversation about the 70s so many of these ideas that were you know so many of these ideas that were counterculture ideas now really have become taken up, if not by the mainstream, then certainly by the tech industry. So everything from, you know, private space travel to, you know, we see the tech industry obsessing over this idea of mindfulness, whatever that actually means. We see, you know, people like Elon Musk or the Google founders uh, going to Burning Man. And, uh, and of course, we see that the main, the massive, all of a sudden mainstreaming of psychedelics, you know, uh, um, uh, rich white people have suddenly decided that drugs are okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, even with the, with, um, who I saw you've had on your podcast, Michael Pollan, you know, his work is massively mainstream people like Joe Rogan, Jason Silva have just made it 
okay to be into psychedelics. And then we see even, you know, kind of the old language of the human potential movement being turned into this real bro idea of hacking and biohacking by people like Tim Ferriss and and Dave Asprey and people like that. And I really want to ask you about this because obviously your, your wheelhouse has kind of been the intersection of technology and religion. And and I want to talk about the modern day and like where where these things are at right now, because we're in this bizarre cultural move, moment where, yeah, like as you're talking about, like all these ideas that were once the province of, you know, the weird that were once the province of acid heads who like Led Zeppelin and, you know, um, Steve Ditko comics and things like that are now, you know, mainstream. Well, I mean, it's a very peculiar thing place for me uh personally for i mean maybe I, my first answer is really a, almost like my own personal identity because um i i very much identified with the counterculture even though even when i was in in high school and had similar experiences to you working in you know i didn't work in a bookstore but i haunted them and uh and and just sort of absorbing all this material and being both fascinated and kind of like repulsed but kind of like what's going on here and i wanted to be exposed to all of it. That's how it hooks you. It has to have the repul- the repulsion as part of the part yeah. of how it, how it addicts you. Absolutely. That's well. That's well said. Uh, that and then I went on and I went to an Ivy League and then I was in New York City being a writer and you know finding my own identity, but not not so much my personal identity as like the world I wanted to speak about and speak in some sense for. And so I became a kind of like journalist of the weird in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, I wrote about virtual reality. I wrote about uh, weird heavy metal groups. I wrote about X-Files when it came out. I wrote about The Simpsons when it came out. I, you know, I, I was kind of on this sort of beat of what I see now is all kind of leading to this this broader idea. And and I didn't just report on it. I was kind of into it. I had like my, it was like p- participant observer. So, and, and then when I moved back from New York to California, it was partly about recovering or restoring or, or thinking of myself as a Californian. I'm a fifth generation Californian. I, I love history. I love psychogeography. I love the history of architecture. So for me, California is a very, very rich palimpsest and, and, and it's a very, it's a kind of wonderfully, uh, appropriate position to be deeply rooted in a rootless place in a, in a famously rootless place and that tension is really important to me and so for me the underground the counterculture or the sub- variety of subcultures which the counterculture splintered into in the 80s which was actually another another aspect of that siloing in the 80s is that the counterculture becomes this myriad of subcultures doing their own little thing out in their own little uh, feral underground over here and you know like larvae or something you know and uh and so but I, this was really a place for me to kind of ba- balance myself it's like i might be talking to the mainstream or i might be writing you know, getting a PhD in the academy or talking to scholars or whatever. But my at my core identity is that I'm a bur- whatever. I went to Burning Man. I would I saw the Grateful Dead when I was 14. I took a lot of acid in Southern California. I read those comics. I read the Rolling whatever. I am that of that thing, and that was always sort of like a precious identity for me. It kind of gave me ballast, a sense of who I was in this postmodern craziness. 
And so now it's like these intimate kind of positions that enabled me to pretend that I was outside of the monster are fully incorporated into the monster. And it's it's very disorienting. I mean, it's kind of funny in the sense that now, like, people listen to me, like, I have something to say, like, there'll probably be people who read more people who would read this book than if I published it 15 years ago, when I could have written the same kind of book. I mean, I wouldn't have been as smart about it. But, uh, but, you know, so it's kind of interesting to have a reflection on it. Um, and to be able to be critical while sympathetic. And that's the a problem is that most of the voices, they're either in it or they're on the outside, like snarky New Yorkers mocking it. And, and those two positions are kind of boring now. So I feel in that sense, very privileged that I have a very sympathetic and very experiential understanding of this world and the, 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 the calls, how hippies and technology and drugs and Buddhism and and the esoteric all kind of come together in this wonderful place that kind of invented our dystopia. Um, and, but I'm also, I have the critical capacities to be like, this sucks. And I'm going to tell you why, you know I mean? And I don't do that too much in the book. I decided not to like, what sucks the mainstreaming of it. No, just no, no, not so much. That is, is that you can see in the way in which things get appropriated, how they already had within them, contradictions, illusions, uh, narcissisms, things that that at the time, maybe you could kind of give it a pass, at least if you were sympathetic like me. But now that it becomes absorbed, it's more clear the way that it was an insufficient uh, uh, thing in what, a way. What's, a, what's an example of that? Um, I think, I don't know, mindfulness might be, since you mentioned it before, what, what do people mean by it? So you have you know, all of these practices entering into a whole generation in the 60s and 70s. Of course, there's been Western Buddhists for, for centuries, but, you know, it really explodes, takes off with Zen first, and then t- the Tibetans come in in the 70s, and Vipassana comes in, which is a little bit less wacky and religious than either of those other modes. So there's different flavors for everybody. You know, you like the high church, you know, crazy psychedelic visions, Here's the Tibetan Buddhist. You like the spare kind of Protestant elite aesthetic artsy avant-garde vibe? Zen is for you, baby. And if you want to just get down to brass tacks, don't worry about that stuff. Just get some tech and like do your explorations. Vipassana, way to go. So we got all this diversity already, but most of it is still, you know, what touches the elite in certain ways. It gets mainstream already. You know, it builds and builds and builds. Um, you know, already in the 90s, it was very visible how it was increasingly kind of middle class and sort of or- organized and it lost its hairy edge. It wasn't, you know, it was a little prim and proper, even kind of a kind of a boring way. I was probably doing a lot of Buddhist practice in the 90s. And there was a point in the early 2000s where I just stopped thinking about myself as a Buddhist, as an American Buddhist. I just didn't care anymore. I was sick of the discourse. I was sick of the psychologizing, the mainstreaming, the loss of the weirdness and whatever. So I just kind of bailed. You, but you, then, killed, you killed the Buddha on the side of the road. <laughs> I tried. But then it just blows up. You know, it, it, it blows up in uh, in more recent decades. And it's, it's very complicated. And, and, you know, I was just reading a, a very harsh critique by this name, guy named Glenn Wallace, which was just a critique of Western Buddhism. And he's just like, no holds barred. It's mostly a philosophical 
philosophical critique, but he spends some time with the way in which it's been appropriated by capitalism, why it's been appropriated by capitalism, how well it serves both the overlords and the wage slaves. Yeah. Um, now that's that's productive territory and uncomfortable territory, but that's where we should, I, I'm, yeah, that's where we need to go, you know, because it's, that's that's what I'm seeing with the mindfulness thing where it's uh, suddenly mindfulness goes from like you say vipassana to be mindful on those spreadsheets please or mindful about those spreadsheets and it also becomes a it becomes a tool of uh, making people more productive but also pacifying them making you know along with the new age movement making them okay with let's you know say the contradictions and abuses of late capitalism it's like oh you know just generate your own bliss you know everything's go with, fine go with the flow Be or you know you don't you can't <laughs> control it so just you know and and so that it's not even just pay attention to the spreadsheet it's that it's that the conditions we're living under you know especially if you're if you're you know, in the working, I mean, we're kind of escaped slaves, but like, if you're in that, wor that working world, you know, there's so much pressure on you that, uh, that Buddhism works. It works. It helps you chill out. It helps you not be depressed. It helps you be nicer to the people at work. And like, all these things are good things. And yet when you have a systemic critique, when you look at it, not at the level of the individual and you look at the big picture, and you see the way that capitalism is not in its own terms for all of its brilliance. And I'm not like just a lumpen, you know, you know, Marxist or anything, but it in its own terms is not going to handle what lies ahead of us. It's just not. And the contradictions of it and the suffering in inherent in it and the, the increasing concentration of wealth and all the stuff that you are, I don't need to repeat here. It, it it's clear the way that something like Buddhism translated into modern American mindfulness Buddhism, maybe it's not even Buddhism anymore, or it is, whatever, uh, is, is helping this maintain this kind of situation. So I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that as a practitioner. Well, I mean, being aware of it, I mean, it's, uh, that's, and talking about it is, is a big thing. And also, you know, and of course we can add to that all of the, like you were touching on earlier, kind of the inherent contradictions that were there already, you know, whether it's the, you know, kind of feudal, uh, the feudal stuff that was in Tibetan Buddhism or the, the views of women in a lot of these traditions, uh, for instance, that women cannot be enlightened and must serve male monks until they can be so fortunate to be born in a, in their next lifetime as a male, and then they can become enlightened. Wow. What a great deal. Right. And, um, and then, of course, there's all the rampant Orientalism, starting with people like Theosophy and uh, Lobsang Rampa and people like that about, oh, the great ascended Tibetan masters. It's like, well, you know, and as you point out, well, you know, since the 70s, well, you can go meet them. There's lots of them here. They're people, you know, it's like, so... Um, but yeah, this is very worrying to me, the kind of co-option of spirituality by the machine as like... I guess another form of anti, you know, antidepressants in a way, you know, it's kind of like as a way to pacify, um, the, you know, the, the workers, right. Or, or to, um, allow people to check out. And this is of course, one of the big critiques of the sixties counterculture, you know, and speaking with people who are there at the time, a lot of them have said to me, it's like, no, like, you know, their view of people like Leary is not charitable, right? The idea that you look at these 
um, student revolution sweeping the world and, you know, the, the massive, um, and not just here, but in, you know, France in 1968 and in Mexico and all over Europe. And that suddenly that people were kind of talked into this idea of, oh, no, the way to change the world is to go internal and, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out, take acid, meditate, and the proliferation of people like the Maharishi and, and transcendental meditation. And you can clearly, from a distance, I think, see that stuff as a pacifying force and that it served power. In the same way, ironically, now we see people like... Um, um, you know, after I've mentioned a few times with people, you know, up to the Trump administration in the second half of the Obama administration, I think the powers that be were so frightened by WikiLeaks, Edward Snowden, Standing Rock, um, you know, the massive uh, sudden, you know, power that people had because of electronic media. And I don't think it's a mistake that the next thing that happens is this engineered uh, conservative or traditionalist backlash. And it's fascinating to see the same kind of dynamic playing out with people like Jordan Peterson, who's not saying drop acid and meditate, but he's saying, oh, clean your room, you know, focus only on yourself. Don't protest, be a responsible member of society, um, sort yourself out before you can, you, you need to sort yourself out before you can critique society. Well, you and I both know that process never ends. And by the time you've done 20 years of Buddhist meditation, you just don't, you can't be bothered leaving the house to protest. It's like, ah, like I can't, I need to take a nap, you know, like <laughs> true detectives on, yeah, I haven't no, cleaned the dishes, I, like I can't be bothered. You know? Yeah, no, it's, it's a tough one because, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this as, uh, as like f for me, a, a further, um, comment on my, confusion and, and confusion, not in the sense like, oh, I just don't know what to think about it. But I, I have a lot of ideas, but it's more that I think we're, we're, we're in part of the, the character of our moment is that we're fundamentally vexed and that there's multiple things pulling on us in different directions because, uh, part of the, the trick, part of the reason this serves power is not just, oh, it's just bad ideology. And it just, that's, I mean, I have some, I have some critiques with the critiques that have to do with what I think is a kind of, uh, uh, ultimately sort of narrow view of what reality is and that I am in a body. I am personally going to die. I am, I do have relations. I have, I have relations with nature, with animals. And I don't believe that neoliberalism is an absolute totalizing force that maintains its power over every little tiny facet of reality. It might want to. In fact, I think there's some good reason to say that it does want to, and that it's doing that process. But until that happens, I have to kind of live in multiple worlds. And in one of those worlds, it's really important for me, for example, to take a, a, a leaf of stoicism from, you know, not from Jordan Peterson, but the kind of thing that he's referring to and keep my room clean. When I meet rabble rousing, angry people who can't keep their shit together, I'm like, eh, you can't keep your shit together, man. I'm not. I'm OK. Oh, you're pissed off. Yes, the world sucks. There's a lot of evil people who are oppressing other people or whatever. But, you know, so we're in this bind where we kind of do have to attend to our internal world to some degree. There is an internal world that, if nurtured, unfolds and seems to bring one into 
uh, capacities of connection with other people, with nature, with the cosmos, with past that are remarkable and seem productive. And yet, you know, the minute we lose our critical edge or our capacity to move between worlds, then we're we're in a box. We're in a cage. And it's great. Go ahead, you know, get that, get it, get enlightened. It's awesome. You know, and but you're staying in your little zone. And and it's but it's not like we can just ignore the zone. So when I'm around people who are super political, very concerned about solidarity and this and that, I often find myself kind of kind of alienated because I don't really I don't work that way. I I I, re I relate more with individuals who are singularities. I, I don't I don't I'm not like I just not that guy. I can't really do it very well. So then is that because I am so deeply stained by the ideology of the individual that I can't do that anymore? And so I'm a part of the problem and. I don't know about that. I think it's more that the, it, we're, we're in this situation where re reality is is multiple. It's not that this is the truth and there's all these falsehoods. It's like the whole thing is like engendering itself in multiple dimensions. And we're kind of stuck between them, trying to move between with different value sets, because sometimes different value sets, value sets have to change in order to be appropriate the way we have different language. You talk to different people. So that's what I mean by the confusion isn't like, oh, I'm just confused. It just feels like to be, to make decisions, to have an identity, to even if it's just a functional identity, is to be in this state where different realities are kind of pulling at us. I think one of the most, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that perfectly sums up so many things. One of the most useful things that I took from my time reading people like Robin, Robert Anton Wilson, and definitely Buddhism, the idea of that there's no fundamental self, is the idea of developing the ability to switch values, switch reality tunnels, switch personalities, and at least be able to see reality from different perspectives. And that, I think, is something that people have completely lost and have become completely rigid, maybe out of fear of dealing with this multiplicitous world that you're you're talking about you know it's kind of like you know as anyone who's ever meditated or done psychedelics uh, can tell you you know that when somebody is confronted by a lot of new information you know like they're tripping they can seize up and get and it becomes a really bad trip and then those who are able to uh, you know, they seize up and cling to their ego, cling to their identity, and uh, it doesn't go well for them. And then those who are able to relinquish into the void, as it were, or at least be able to open to multiple perspectives, have a much better time of it. And and that, I think, is the most... Um, um, is a great gift of all of these ideas and traditions. And it's something that's uh, allowed me to be, I feel... Um, at home in this weird world that we're in now and perhaps more psychologically healthy. Uh, whereas if I was still clinging to this, you know, as you see people now going back to this neo-reactionary or, or traditionalist idea, clinging with all their might with white knuckles, you know, pun intended, to something that probably never existed because that's who they, you know, that's their last shred of what they think reality is. Um, well, here's a question for you. This is one that I wrestle with a lot because I, I'm I, I feel uh, similar in some ways to this the situation, or uh, I can I can relate with it. Is that it's it seems clear to me that being able to move between worlds in that Robert Anton Wilson way, or to have a certain kind of 
proactive relativism and, and being able to talk to different people and to see how reality is kind of composed of all these different perspectives and and that it's good to be. So I think that's an extraordinary survival strategy and even a strategy of health that enables people who at least people who are paying attention to sort of take on as much as you can or at least, uh, you know, exist within this reality without holding back in, in our current moment. But what I wonder is how does it become, and this is the kind of political question, this is the person, and I respect this question, who's saying, great guys, wonderful, you are you have the privilege to be able to like hop between worlds and, you know, be groovy and, you know, go to Burning Man and then go, you know, and then do your politics and this and that. But that's not going to cut it. That's not going to do it because it's it's too, it's already too postmodern. I don't think postmodern is the right word to refer to that kind of uh pluralism i think it's sort of a pluralism which is which is uh, almost ontological like there's multiple worlds and we're moving between them but there's not a great answer to either how do we form the solidarity we need to actually you know respond to the environmental crisis respond to the social crisis etc cetera, etc cetera. and i do believe we need that solidarity or some form of it but also it's a, this is almost a kind of a trickier one how do we uh uh how, where do our values come from? Where do our, that's the question. Where do your values come from? You seem like a good guy. You know, I've met some, you know, people who are multiplicitous in the way that we're talking about. Don't seem like such great guys. I've seen people, you, cause you can use that, that logic to justify oh, tons of stuff. And, and that's where more conservative people are really threatened by people like us because they're like, no, 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 there's no absolute, there's no truth, there's no morals, you're just postmodern relativists, you're just a nihilist. And so, and, and I'll, I'll end and then let you, I really want to hear your response here. Uh, something very profound happened. I didn't play D&D very much. I played it a little bit. I wish I'd played it more, but my friend, we were already into doing drugs. So it was just more fun to get, you know, whatever. We didn't need the books. Yeah. Anyway, I was already, anyway. Uh, uh, but I did play. And, and the thing that I loved was the the moral, uh, what, what do they call it? Moral alignment you get. And it's like, it was so obvious to me, even when I was like 14 years old, that I was chaotic good. It was so clear. I was like, oh, I'm chaotic. Good. Yeah, sure. And then like sometimes I get in really like philosophical arguments with people and I realize the best way to say my position is to go, well, it's kind of like D&D. I'm kind of like chaotic. Good. <laughs> and uh, but that what is that? Is that just my temperament? Is it my family? Is it where, where does it come? Where do we still have the values that enable us to be compassionate, to be looking for truth, to be hoping for a better world, to not getting caught up in the narcissism or the the story that capitalism wants to tell us about how we can be realized selves or whatever, even though we can recognize the that there's values to these various perspectives. Hmm. Well, you mentioned, since we're talking about the, you know, Dungeons and Dragons in the late 70s, I have to share this. And also you mentioned how um, conservative people are in, in many cases, I think quite rightly threatened by, you know, this kind of people being the stereotypical, you know, no values, no morals, no mooring, no, no center, just whatever. Cause you know, having been around a lot of people like that in my life, I, you know, do not want, right. It's like, that yeah. is the pathway to dissolution in the abyss and, and your life falling apart. So it's just, and there's no benefit to it other than to see it, experience it and go, okay, that's not for me, at least in my case, maybe it's different for other people. But, um, I often, um, I often tell 
friends of mine that, uh, particularly living in California and being around uh, weird scenes, I, I sometimes enter the track. Uh, excuse me, I enter the, the track. I enter the trance of Jack Chickapati in Polly, which is where I suddenly understand. I have this trance where I understand that I'm in. I make that my surroundings are literally a Jack Chick tract, <laughs> and that it's like, and that if somebody from let's say Kansas or you know Memphis, Tennessee, were to view wherever I happen to be, whether it's like some, you know, warehouse rave or, you know, just neo-pagan people or things like that, it would, li- it would literally seem like a jack chick track to them. Like, you know, people sitting around doing drugs, talking about the occult. It's just like, ah, I'm living in a jack chick track, you know, and anytime you're in a situation where people are wearing robes or dressed as druids, which thank God never happens to me that much anymore, but it used to a lot. <laughs> It's like you, it's like suddenly the, the the trance of Jack Chickapati begins. It is not comfortable. <laughs> it's not. Com- it's like oh my god, I'm a living caricature. Uh, you know, like what am I? Am I like somebody would see me as like some agent of Satan here to like undermine Christian uh, values or something like that? Like what if that is what I am? Oh God! But um, yes, this has actually caused some profound moments of soul searching many t- many many times in my I life. I can I can hear it. No, I have definitely I I can I can taste that. I even I even think that that's in a way part of what bohemia is is that bohemia is the willingness to celebrate and play with creating situations that if you really take them seriously in their in their expression or their appearance are demonic or whatever. I don't want demonic, not like demons, but like are like whatever, uh, infernal, <laughs> you know, that they have, oh, it's, that's a bit much. Like I've gone, oh, I've gone too far now. There's, there's a too farness in the picture. And if that's not there, then it's just simple hedonism, which is not very interesting to me. Like hedonism, to my mind, gains value the more risk it has. But some of the risks that it's running are much worse than just conventional hedonism. And that's the kind of edge of danger that I think was really helped characterize in some ways the existential value of a lot of countercultural experiences up to a certain point. So I could talk about early Burning Man in those terms. Early Burning Man, there was danger, actual threat. You could die. People died. You could very, you know, burn, you get burned. Oh, there's a fire. Oh, shit, got burned. Oh, well, you know, this kind of stuff happened. And then there's sort of a more cultural form of that. Like, how far? What is your edge? What does it mean when you have your edge and psychedelics and guns and, you know, you know, it's it's a weird place and it was not safe. It didn't feel safe. And then what it becomes is this increasingly like very hedonistic, you know, safe environment for a kind of indulgence in a sort of circulated idea of the edge. I don't want to say that there is still awesome stuff out there. And there was some terrible stuff back there and cheesiness and insular dumps, you know, whatever. It's not, I'm not like, oh, it was so great back then, but it was different. And that difference, I think, is something that's actually happened to counterculture in a way. And that part of what makes our contemporary moment difficult is that while in some sense those st- those weird scenes continue, once you're once they're Instagrammed, once they're part of the circulation, then they're really banal. 
So it's like we're 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 in a different kind. You know, Hannah Arendt talking about the banality of evil. I'm not talking about that kind of evil. She was talking about the evil of like killing people in a systematic basis in the in you know during the Holocaust. I mean this other kind of like bohemian aesthetic evil, this sort of excess of craziness and cutting the edge. That is like utterly banal. So what do we what do we do with this stuff? What do we, where do we how do we like come we come from what we've come from? There's no way out. We're not going to be reactionary and turn against it. We're we can see the limits of it with the esoteric or the way Buddhism. What and what do we do now? What do we do with this stuff? Are, are, is there still room for a for a new magic that's not just like chaos magic that's actually synthesizing these things and and somehow engaging with a contemporary world without losing that yumminess like without becoming bland and and too uh psychological you know right well yeah i mean i think that these are like at least in my life i've i've it's been productive for me to think of these things in a couple ways one is just as learning stages Right. And and both on an individual level and at a cultural level. And, and you're talking about this time, you know, early Burning Man. And and, um, you know, for me, I, I didn't make it to Burning Man until I think 2008. But the, you know, for me in the, the late 90s and the 2000s, like the chaos magic scene or joining kind of secret societies, it's like that was a crazy place. Like that was an unsafe place. There was insanity going on there. Like it was truly um, the wrong side of the tracks. And, um, even though the, I had so many hair raising experiences at the time, like I really have a sense of nostalgia for it. And I actually was talking about this with, um, Stephen Flowers and th that's not, it's not so, I mean, yes, all that stuff is still there. You can still go get into these occult things, but the value there was that you had actually found some type of egress completely outside of the spectacle. Right. And all that stuff, of course, now has been fully recapitulated and regurgitated, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times by the spectacle. And there's no charge to it at all anymore. You know, in the even in the, the classic Freudian sense, you know, the, the value of a taboo is that it is taboo and it has that charge. Once you reveal the tab, once you reveal it, it's in a Nine Inch Nails video or, you know, like a magic, you reveal the symbol, you reveal the pentacle. Well, now the charge is gone. The reason it has a charge is because it's forbidden and it's hidden. And so when you find it, it has that incredible like frisson of, of <laughs> like this is, you know, I finally found something that is truly beyond the pale and now that's pretty much gone and it and but i think the answer to your question um it's an old model but and it's I, it's not a perfect model and I do have my issues with it, but I think actually spiral dynamics uh, has some interesting things to say about, you know, what we're talking about, you know, yellow, yellow, I don't want to get too much into spiral dynamics jargon because it just gets too jargony, but understanding that these levels of culture, whether it's, you know, conservative thinking or then ecological thinking and then um, systems based thinking, like what we're talking about, being able to see how everything fits together, that these are stages of how cultures progress and I recently learned, I had always thought that spiral dynamics was kind of a fringe idea that was, you know, people like Ken Wilber wrote about it and people like us knew about it. But I recently learned that Nelson Mandela actually used spiral dynamics as the way to structure the, um, you know, when he became president of South Africa, he used spiral dynamics as the model to put the country together. Which is amazing, right? Because it, it is fascinating. It's, this blew my mind because he had come from a world where people were seeing each other as their skin color, 
right? And he'd been in prison for, for decades trying to thinking, okay, either I'm going to die or if I get out of here, I've got to be a leader. So what do I do? And the answer he came up with was he was using spiral dynamics. And he was, so he had people seeing each other as different spiral dynamics, spiral dynamics colors. Like, oh, you're a green meme, like you're a hippie or you're a blue meme, you're an authoritarian. And so now they were relating, they were using this idea of relating on a color level, but it was ideological color. Uh, And that, and using this, he restructured South Africa. This was fascinating for me to learn. So I think that there's a lot to look at there. And and I think first and foremost, we do need to get into the, the first and foremost, not just the counterculture, but for, not just the counterculture, which is really a misnomer now. It just doesn't, it's been recapitulated. It yeah, doesn't exist uh, anymore. And, um, and, um, you know, in, in anything other than nostalgia and these ideas that are still very potent, right. That are still there, but as an identity, it's, it's, it's nostalgia at this point. But I think that what we do need as a culture is just to get, you know, past the, um, you know, I think that we're very clearly as Ken Wilber properly diagnosed, we're in this moment of progressing from the green meme of everyone's view counts and there's no hierarchies to reintegrating hierarchy in the sense of understanding how all systems in the world function together. And again, I don't want to go too down the spiral dynamics rabbit hole because I'm just going to, because for people who don't know what it is, it's just going to sound like jargon. But we we do need to get to the, right now as a culture, I think we're, we're going crazy a bit because we're in this that we're in this cultural landscape of multiplicity and you can see things with the resurgence of the right of people violently regressing to get away from it but we have to go forward we have to understand how everything in the world functions together as a whole system so that we understand the natural um integration of everything and how you know let's just make this simple how people can have different views and coexist, and that those views might be complementary and might be, it might be necessary for everyone to have different viewpoints, and different people might have different functions in society without it being compulsory or hierarchical. It's just certain people see the reality and have different talents than other people. And we need to see that from an integral and or in an integrated viewpoint. We just need to be okay with the fact that we're all different and learn how to work together without trying to come up with these totalizing uh, or or just descending into social media violence. Yeah. I I, I mean, I'm, I'm very, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I could say the word pessimistic, but I would say I, maybe I'll speak more personally and say I'm very um, kind of uh, uh, saddened exhausted, confused. I, I, I don't see, I've always been that, that person, you know, like I've always, you know, even, even with, with my kind of countercultural bona, bona feeds, I, I like to go, you know, I, I'm happy to talk to a conservative Christian if they're nice. I don't, I don't have any, I don't, it's just, I don't function that way. Yes. I, in a way I'm privileged. I'm a straight white male. I, you know, have means or whatever. So I, I realize that I don't have to carry a certain kind of burden. Nonetheless, you know, I could still be a jerk, but I'm not. And and I've always sort of functioned that way and, and been interested in how difference gets articulated and wanted to support and nurture it. And, it. and I always felt that that was part of what it meant to be a countercultural intellectual or somebody who was invested in the mind as well as in culture. Um, and so I, I it just always seemed kind of like almost like that's the given, but it's so gone. And that's where I, when I talked earlier, I want to be clear about the alienation I feel from 
some people on the left is, is my, my values are, are still pretty progressive along those lines in, in terms of how to how to how to wield the engine of capital and, and distribute its goods in different ways. But the problem I have is that is that while it's much more fierce on the right, you still have this kind of closing up shop kind of like we're we're just this now and they're them and you're either with us or against us kind of thing. And I just I can't do that. And I feel like this is the weird part that at the same time, I'm deeply alienated from our moment. I feel very vulnerable because I feel like if I if even like in this kind of context, I'm like, oh, if I say the wrong thing, then I'm going to get that or whatever. And I'm going to have to handle that in the Internet land. But much worse than that is that I feel like my sensibility is what helps us get through this situation. Like people like me, not like I'm a leader, but just like the sensibility, like I feel like I'm keeping this this light of like a healthy multiplicity, not uh, anything goes multiplicity. And that's part of the problem, I think, is that I, I, I very much pick um, resonate with what you said about, about a learning process. And I think one of the great problems, and it, it's just nobody does this, is it's, it's very clear to me that if you're talking about spiritual worldviews, if you're talking about attitudes towards the other, attitudes towards hedonism or whatever, that most people, I think, if allowed to do so, go through these stages and they get out of these stages. And if you're going into a stage, you know, don't worry about it too much. I mean, you know, if there's something excessive or you really got to do it or they're really going off the rails, yeah, you might need to do an intervention. But it seems like a lot of people kind of go through things and some people do get stuck. That sucks. But I don't really see another way out. But it, it has a philosophical aspect as well. You know, there was a there was a point in the study of Plato that they came to they they were like, you know, okay, one guy wrote all these things. And we know that one guy wrote these things. It was this guy. And they're they're kind of contradictory. I mean, they're pretty contradictory sometimes for a philosopher. In fact, sometimes they seem to be saying almost exactly the opposite kind of thing. And then what people started to realize and is now kind of accepted is that the texts themselves were like stages of an education process. Ah, that's interesting. And one of the first things you learn is kind of a uh, disgust with the world, with the way things are. You get real dark. You're trapped. There's no way out. Don't what you want to have like you want to have sex. It's disgusting. So you get this ascetic, negative view that's represented. You know, I'm kind of parodying it in some ways, but in some texts. But the whole point is to like break you out of your kind of natural state or your given acculturated state so that you're like shocked and then you're ready to learn higher levels at the top of which are much more integral views where the body's in there and everything's in there and it's much more um you know integral in the, in the in the kind of modern sense and i think that that's true of a lot of spiritual positions you know it's like it's important to spend some time as a paranoid gnostic but if you get stuck it's just it's just a bummer for you and everybody else you know, and there's reasons that it's wrong. I mean, there's reasons to not believe a lot of conspiracy theories. Doesn't mean we don't go into them and see what happens. And oh my God, the world is like, you know, we, we, some of us are called to enter into these modes, but it, the stickiness of them is what to me seems the problem. And there's, 
they're, they seem increasingly sticky. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I just like got a, you know, uh, somebody sent me a link to a website that was put together by someone I, you know, was in my circle. We weren't like close friends, but, you know, we were hanging out, whatever. Didn't have too many deep conversations, but a good guy, whatever. And it was total off the rails ufology. I mean, like, whoa. And then another person who was like a groovy hippie, really beautiful, like older lady who was like real soul, like real earthy, like she's real stable, actually, real stable part of the community, kind of a lot of people around her. And she was like all QAnon. Oh, she got into QAnon. Oh, no. And you're like, oh, no. and you're like, what the f-? you know? Oh, no. And so so you're like, oh God, the it's deep not state. like Anyway, so so the stickiness of the situation, and I just don't know what what, what do we do other than just keep having these conversations, Jason. Well, I, I think being for me being having these conversations and being visible, it's like hello. There's you know, it's there's still sanity, but um, the yeah, I mean, even just on the conspiracy tip, you know, like just remember, you know, it, you know, just reading Robert Anton Wilson, like wow, this is a fun game to play, you know, like Illuminatus, like oh, this is so, you know, yeah, it's kind of crazy, it's a little paranoid, but it's like kind of in this endearing, like Austin, Texas kind of way, like oh, like you know, like like being into conspiracy theories, it was like collecting collecting conspiracy theories was like collecting um, uh, records or collecting um, baseball cards or something like that, like finding it out new stuff. And then, but it was like, it always with this Robert Anton Wilson thing, it had this like kind of like positive hippie kooky vibe. But then like, you know, then, you know, we got David Icke who was completely bad trip zone. Like this is totally real and happening and lizard people are everywhere. It's just like bad trips are us. And then now, and it became totally serious and it completely lost the distance where with Robert Anton, with Robert Anton Wilson, it was always, the distance was always there. Like, Oh, this is, this is fun to play with. Like, isn't this interesting? And it went from there to, this is true and literally happening. And like you said, the, the Gnostic, you know, locked in Gnostic paranoia. And now, frankly, you know, you look at like conspiracy stuff online, they're all Nazis now, like the alt right has like, paved over and colonized all of that stuff. And it was really instructive. I've talked to a few people about this. It was very instructive to see all these people who had kind of Gnostic or conspiracy blogs or podcasts, almost overnight, went hardcore alt right, anti Semitic, um, red, I- red ice radio is a good example. They used to do kind of like crazy Gnostic stuff and now it's all Nazism and it happened almost overnight, almost as if it was either, I don't necessarily want to say it was coordinated or just people are that gullible and went for the new thing. Like that was the new cultural thing. And for that reason, I'm just like, look, I don't want to have anything to do with any of this anymore. It's like, I don't want to have anything to do with conspiracy stuff or even a lot of the occult world because a ton of occult people just went down that rabbit hole. It's like, look, you know, like the whole, you know, it's just like, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to even be around this stuff. So I think that, but to talk about the positive and I think at least the, let me think, the conclusion that I've come to is just putting, you know, putting like having, having conversations like this, I I really think that, you know, podcasting is a great leveling as much negative stuff as there is on the internet. Podcasting brings back long form communication and conversations almost in a way that wasn't even really happening before the internet. So 
Um, I think that just for me, at least completely dropping the edgelord front and just being like, look, this is me. I'm human. I don't know. But let's talk. Can we communicate? You know, like, let me just be honest about what I'm feeling and what I'm going through and just not um, not doing the kitschy edgelord thing. Yeah. At all. Well, well, I want to ask you about that. Just like what 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 happened in your life that enabled you to make that that transition? Because that's something that people can get stuck in. Like when you were younger, you were in this crazier scene. There's a lot of energy or you're full of, you know, piss and vinegar. And then you realize you can sort of craft personas that then craft other people's view of you and you can sort of start to play with reality. And my earlier impressions of you was was someone like, oh, he's like a really smart you know, edge walker who's like pushing it. And like, it's kind of a little too much for me. I don't know if I'd want to go to a party with him, but like, I'm glad he's there, you know, cause I like that. I like, I like characters. So I could tell you were a character. You weren't a, you know, a sort of generic mage, a post postmodern mage. You were like doing something, but you also were, you know, full of yourself or whatever. You had this kind of edge. And the person I'm meeting now is like, is really, you know, deep and interesting and, and level and, but also able to dip in those waters and, and be, you know, be informed by the, the weird experiences you and I have had. I mean, we're, that's, we, we can't get out of those things. Did, was it a, a gradual evolution? Was it something happened in your life? Was there, was it a cognitive insight? Was it, you know, and I say that because I'm interested in how people go through those worlds and then come out of them without, you know, a, a, you know, not like a diametric break, but how they evolve, if you will, in, in, in different direction. Man, well, let me think about this. I think that we're really we're similar in a lot, lot of ways, I think, just having this conversation with you and the one we had previously. And I, I think that one of the similarities is that when I went into that world in the first place, I was doing it from a position of ironic distance. You know, it was like, you know, I was um, you know, a writer and a journalist. And I went into the world of the occult as, you know, oh, this is an interesting subject to write about. And like, oh, you know, like as the thing that journalists do, like, okay, check out this subculture and I'm I'm going to curate this subculture for you. And I'm going to be the guy who's kind of like, I show you this, but I'm not like, you know, but I can still have a toe in the cynical, sarcastic New York world of kind of, you know, one eye, you know, one one hand in and one eyebrow up, as it were, you know. <laughs> but um particularly Good eyebrow. Thank you. Um and and so it was and it definitely was from this when I going into it, you know, it was from this um kind of agitprop way. Or, you know, it was very consciously like, you know, wanting to be at you know wanting to be punk about it and wanting to you know just listening to atari atari teenage riot nonstop you know when i was doing that stuff so um and wanting to you know push the push the boundary because i was in my early 20s and that's what you know guys in their early 20s want to do a lot of the times and and then uh after particularly after um Generation Hex came out after my first book came out, the line began to blur. And I think that this happens with a lot of creative people, you know, where it was like all of a sudden people saw me as that. They weren't responding to me as if I was um, John Ronson, right? They were responding to me as if I was Marilyn Manson. <laughs> so, so you know, they, they, they weren't seeing the, um, they weren't seeing the, I mean, clearly, you know, uh, you were a lot of people who were 
you know, were picking up on that could see the the irony or the ironic distance. But the broad majority of people were just like, whoa, like, you know, totally taking it on in full. And and so as people began to react to me as if I was that character that I'd built, which I think is something that happens to musicians a lot. Um, you know, it's like I created this character intentionally, and then people reacted to me as if I was that person. And so the the line began to blur. And but I never totally I never told what I think, okay, if I'm going to be completely honest, I think that I never totally lost that line. And when the line, but when the line began to blur and I began to lose my balance and particularly maybe around 24, 25, it's like, whoa, like I'm surrounded by people using hard drugs. I'm surrounded by people who are just, you know, Satanist burnouts and this is not fun anymore. And it's kind of like I, I breached past the kitsch barrier, right? But at the same time, that doesn't mean that I was insincere because I believe then and I still believe now that all this stuff is critically important, right? It's just that there's all these other, there was at the time all this subcultural baggage that was not productive. And so, um, you know, that kind of was my, I spent many years in my late 20s um, where my life had pretty much fallen apart. And, and I put myself back together through, you know, that's, I think when, when the glamour wore off, like the, the edgy stuff, the chaos magic, the drugs, the hedonism, the, you know, getting girls to pay attention to me, uh, sudden, cause suddenly I'd gone from this, you know, acneed English major D and D nerd to like the the dark shaman of the apocalypse like overnight <laughs> and i was like whoa i'm getting attention <laughs> you know and that was very disorienting <laughs> and uh because that's who i was you know and and suddenly i became this character that i'd invented and but a lot of the world that i was in now just didn't sit right you know i could just see the edge of self-destruction i could see it didn't feel comfortable um i could see losing myself really easily and for me the idea of getting trapped as that person was really really frightening and so i really pulled back and i think for me without being i don't know a little a little ham-handed about this i think that for me that's when a sense of real spirituality and real 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 spiritual practice began for me because then it wasn't about, okay, I'd gone through that. It wasn't about putting up a front. It was just about how do I be a healthy, happy, sane human being? And so it took me a long time to get out of that. And I think that. It's funny. I got, I just got to put input just how much our ordinary suffering as human beings is really the crucible of so much real growth. And it's just, it's just true. And you, and, and, you know, it sounds like kind of a little cliche to say it, but I know that's true in my case. I mean, I think I I avoided not just a fate, but like that that whole character thing, because I was always I don't know. I think I, I had a certain model of a kind of scholar that was sort of distanced by nature that or but I also I loved being that curator of subcultures, especially in my journalism in the in the 90s, you know, and the hip cat. I definitely wanted to be hip. I want to be very fucking hip. And but like also like I'm hip, so I'm still but I still get the good grades. It's like I feel sometimes like I like I I my whole life was set in motion by the following tacit agreement between my parents and me in high school, which is that I I could hang out with disreputable individuals 
go away for the entire weekend, have long hair, have pictures of unhealthy rock stars and, and hot girls plastered all over my room, which was filled with weird occult objects if I continue to get good grades. So I'm, I'm like, so that was always the deal in a way. And so like, even when I was in the, like these kind of groovy subcultures, it was like, there was still a part of me that was like, you know, but I'm, I'm still kind of like being an, you know, I'm sort of an anthropologist here. So it's got that ironic distance that you talk about, but also a kind of like, a, like a commitment. I had some kind of commitment to a larger view or a larger discourse that I was probably half in my own head, but it, it kept me from that, that category. Uh, but you know, like a lot of people, you know, I've many people in my life who told me like, dude, if you wanted to start a religion, like you'd be great. You know, like I give a charismatic speaker, I can bring all these things together. I'm kind of delightful, but I'm, you know, I still seem kind of heavy or like, well, there's a gravitas or something. It's like, you got it made boy. And I, that was always like the must to avoid. It was like nothing that smacks of that. Like the, in any situation where I'm giving myself more authority to speak, then I have to undermine it even more with self-mockery or humor or whatever. And that's just like the modus, you know, this is very Gen X, um, uh, position in a way, you know, totally. I'm very, very generational that way. And I'm okay with it. Like, you know, it's, but it, you're, you're, you're very right to, uh, uh, to point that out. But, you know, I, I said, even though we've been talking for a while, I wanted to read a response to our conversation on that we had on expanding mind. Can I, can I wrap? I want to, I wanted to, before we yeah, lose the thread of this, I wanted to add one thing just, that, just because it touches on the generational thing and what you mentioned about what was it that shifted this. And honestly, the, it, the economic crash, right? 2008. And I'm not, I'm not exactly, I was born in 81. So I'm not, I'm kind of in this weird gray zone between Gen X and millennial. So I'm not exactly a millennial, but I'm kind of like there with them in a way. And when the economic crash happened, that was, it was just like, okay, there's no time for this anymore. There's just, just not time. Like, okay, just like, you know, like so, so sober the fuck up. Like you got to eat. You, you have to figure out some way to get food on the table. Like this shit is real. It's like, you know, snap the fuck out of like all, like it just, it just, it was like overnight, all of that stuff, the, you know, the nineties counterculture and anything edgelordy. It's just like, we don't have time for that anymore. And, and, you know, it's like, I was talking to Duncan Trussell about this. It's like the whole thing about, he was talking about comedians being edgelords in the nineties. And I was like, well, you know, the thing about edgelord being an edgelord now is you're trying to, you're trying to shock traumatized people, you know, because the whole, the whole edgelord, the whole point of the edgelord position is, you know, when done right, is this kind of Gurdjieffian thing of shocking the normies out of their cultural trance. It's like, they're freaking traumatized. They're on the couch staring at the TV because they're so afraid of everything that's going on. They've had to deal with the economic crash. They've had to deal with Trump. They've had to deal with, you know, people are going through losing medical care, not being able to afford uh, their insulin shots. It's like of what value is trying to shock people like that? It's pointless. So for me, you know, my, and it's interesting you mention, you know, trying to get away from the being an authority figure. But for me, I was trying to get away from that for so long. I just wanted to be anonymous. I wanted to be like a, a nameless, faceless person. And I couldn't. And the, 
Um, and I realized that it was also an ego position for me to be like, oh, well, I'm not going to share everything that I know with people because they're not ready for it. And, you know, it's too dangerous for them. It's like, well, no, I mean, it's like, what's the point of me learning all this stuff if I can't make something productive out of it? And so the, really the only thing that I care about right now, like I don't care about any of the the edgelord stuff. I don't care about any making myself significant. I don't care about um, any type of, you know, subcultural elitism for me. And kind of, it was always this way for me, but it's taken me a long time to clarify it and hone down on it. It's just, okay, out of all this stuff, what actually works? What can actually reduce human suffering? What can actually make life better for, for people? Okay, well, let's hone down on that and deliver it. Because from my perspective, if I can't deliver, then what what the what is the point of all of this? It's like either I can deliver something that helps or I can't, you know, either I'm useful or I'm not. And, and I think that's a perspective that was, that is also a generational perspective in that it's a bit more millennial. And yeah. it was just, it was just honed in the, the economic crash. That's fascinating. That's a really, that's an inspiring comment, but it does set up the, 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 the letter. So it's, this is from my friend, Brian, and he heard our show that is, that I just posted or just posted a week ago. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, let me, I got to find it. Da, da, da. That uh, the Jason Louvre show was just a dense hunk of chocolate cake I was hoping for when I initially inquired as to whether you'd read The Empire of Angels or not. He was the one that got me to read it again. I mean, I'd wanted to read it, but I just he was like, come on, do it. So good from both ends of the conversation. I've listened to several interviews with him. Da da da. It's nice to hear a thoughtful discussion of Uncle Al that isn't drenched in tacky Typhonian butter kisses or self-centered moral dismissal. <laughs> well, I love that. Ke keeping that fella's well-fed poop compartmentalized is no small task, and you all landed as well as one could hope. But now the question remains, and this is why I'm reading this. How do we build a Western esoteric practice that isn't as flimsy as chaos magic can all too often be, but also isn't dropping you right in the middle of the book of revelations and making you pick sides between two equally problematic mountain gods? How do you take the brain change technology of the golden dawn and the AA with the pursuit for the higher, highest evolved self, but design it outside of a system whose entire phone book was written thousands of years ago? Is it inha inhibiting these energies similar to how Santeria practitioners use the interface of Catholic saints for their work, or is it building something holy and completely new and different? Wow. Well, that's a great comment. Um, man. Okay. Well, I know it's, I mean, it's a tough, I mean, you know, we've been doing, we've been doing tough questions, the whole, the whole conversation. And, and for me, it's about, let me, I'll start off with, to let you think too, is, I mean, I, th I think a lot about magic because I often felt like a poser in magic scenes, even though I've been in orders and done rituals and stuff. Not not nearly as much as you have, but I've, and I've also been friends with people with magicians forever. I love being friends friends with people who do magic pra practitioners. And I was, oh, I'm kind of a poser, you know. I'm more of a contemplative, more of a Buddhist guy. I just like the you know kind of contemplation. I'm not so into the will thing. I don't know what that means. Blah blah blah. So I had all these these issues about it. But really, I realized that if I boil it down, it's it's like, what do you do with the supplement that is enchantment, that that extra fizz that can you can't really locate in a rational, reasonable, even in psychologically integral approach to reality. There's this kind of excess and you can go through elaborate mechanisms to stage it and and form it. Um, 
or, and this is sort of where I find myself, you just kind of melt it into the everyday. I mean, now my everyday isn't the same as some other people's everyday. As I said, I'm an escaped slave, but I'm still, I find that mag magic and enchantment is so intimate to just the ordinary features of the day. And in that way, it really dovetails with, with some of what is best in Buddhism or most pragmatic in Buddhism, but not just pragmatic, because it's, if it's just pragmatic, it's just more of the same, get the self, get ahead kind of stuff. It's got to be pragmatic plus, like re realist plus. And that plus is still worth in working with, invoking, uh, believing in, even if, if necessary to keep it going, uh, not just being ironic about and we can see that in these older systems, but I'm not so sure. I don't. I don't know how to make it happen. It's almost like I, I can. I can see it happening um, in the fabric of the of, of the everyday. But that's my stab. Well, it's got to be in the fabric of the everyday. I think it's. It has to be right. It's like because it's like look. We look. We've got the internet now. All right. Like people can't be fooled by these claims people used to make in magic books, you know, it's like, you can't just, people can't just like pick up a Kenneth Grant book and be like, Whoa, like there must be, yeah, I'm sure you remember that, uh, you know, up to the, up to the era of social media, you could still do this thing of picking up an occult book and imagining in your head, like, wow, what this person, what this person must be like, they must live in like a castle in Prague and, you know, do secret rituals and be part of some eyes wide shut. And it's like, now, you, that doesn't happen because now you just go to their social media page and you say, oh, well, they work in IT in, you know, in the Midwest and they have like Pepe alt-right memes all over their page and they're sharing anti-vaxxer things and InfoWars stuff. And it's like, all right, spell, <laughs> you know, ah, you know, so and this is really instructive, by the way, in, in understanding it's like you can, you, you know, all these fearsome occult people, you can go to their Facebook page, you will be shocked. So, but I think that I mean, look, not to self plug, but you know, I'm working on it with every waking moment, you know, it's like, and I have been for a long time now, and it's not a small project, it, it, you know, in terms of revitalizing the Western tradition, there's so much there, technology wise, and there's so much there to wade through in terms of um, you know, people's personalities and history and cultural context and the fact that so much was written in twilight language. And then there's the whole idea of adapting it for people where people are at. I'm working my ass off on it. I, a lot of it has already been manifested at magic.me. And, and honestly, John D and the empire of angels was my, was, was a work to recontextualize the whole thing. And the, one of the main reasons why I wrote that book was to show that there is a, a continuous, a continuous tradition and to also simultaneously kind of judo flip um, Crowley. Yeah. Right. In the sense that his personality has just, and not just even his personality has had such a pull of gravity. And I mean that either with people who, not just with people who are dogmatic Thelemites, but people who are reacting against him. It's like, it's like in even, even me in a sense, it's like, I have to like deal with him and react against him. But, um, um, so that I think that the first step is showing the tradition, showing that there actually is a tradition. I think that is very critically important because a lot of what's happened is that particularly since chaos magic, um, 
is that people have just been able to make up their version of it and say this is it. But well, look, you know, JSTOR is free. It's on the internet. You, we have so much better, uh, much better academic resources to actually look at what the reality of these things is instead yeah. of filling in the dots with conjecture. You said you said it as kind of a throw to me. Like that's the freaking point of this. Right. It's like if you can like magic, like don't worry about crystals and dragons and airbrush stuff and the, the glamour. It's like if you can free yourself from being a debt slave in modern America or wherever it happens to be and just being shackled to this consumerist nightmare and gaining some degree of personal autonomy, like then then success, right? That's what we want. And then from there, you can work at sharing how you did that with other people. And, and I think that, but to make it really simple, it comes down to two questions, right? And, and in terms of whether it's revitalizing the Western magical tradition or, or any spiritual tradition, right? Any consciousness change thing. The first is a question that you need to constantly ask yourself and you, I mean, anyone who's engaged in this is how do I see other people? Right. And this is always a classic test of enlightenment, right? Somebody claims to be enlightened. You ask them, what are other people? And and a lot of times you'll get answers like, oh, they're the sleepers, they're the unawakened, or they're, you know, they're just there, they're consumers, you know. It's like, so it's like if you it's like, and I feel that if you're if you end up in a position where other people seem if you have anything less than total compassion for the humanity and vulnerability and suffering of other people while simultaneously understanding that they're not victims, they're people just like you, and they're just as inherently divine as you, anytime you're in some magical change um, paradigm and you, you end up slipping into this place of thinking that it makes you more significant or more elite than other people, then you've slipped right? You've, you've slipped off the path. And that dovetails with the second question, which is what can actually help people, right? Out of all this stuff, because it's so easy for people to disappear up their own assholes, right? And just read every book and do all the gematria. And like you said, the Kenneth Grant, you know, uh, pastry confection and, uh, whatever that is, you know, they're just like up the, up the asshole of Cthulhu, um, or just become, you know, endlessly armchair, or just become upset. Then the other thing you see is people just becoming obsessed with collecting grades or getting the accolades of people or becoming significant online. It's all bullshit. All of it. All of it, right? And even the ideologies and the practices don't really matter. The only thing that matters, at least in my way of thinking, is what if this can actually help people? Like, what can actually ease human suffering? What can, like you said, what can we do to show people that there is a hopeful view to see the world? What can we do to show people that they can escape from being slaves, whether that's slaves physically or um, um, slaves of the mind? Or what can we do, you know, even frankly, literally, tangibly to solve some of the serious issues in this world, like literal human trafficking or literal you know, it's like, where's the, okay, if you have so much magic power, then what are you going to do about human trafficking? Right? Like what, you know, what are you going to do? Right? Let's see, you know, there's so many, uh, you know, in the, um, in the, uh, you know, in fantasy books and grimoires and movies and stuff like this, wizards are always, you know, dueling dragons and uh, evil nemesis and stuff like that. Well, there's lots of dragons in our world right now. You know, human trafficking, the dangers of artificial intelligence, um, you know, systemic racism, um, 
you know, name there's it's endless, right? Serious diseases. We'll pick a dragon and and see what you see how much see find a problem big enough to test whether this stuff in your head is actually real or not and see how much of a dent you can make. That's just, I'm just free, free associating. it. No, no, it's, it's, it's good. It's a good thing to do. I, I, you know, I think it's probably a good, good place to wind up, but I wanted to pull out one other, uh, helpful tip. I would, I would say something that unites our experiences and also some of the other ones we were talking to. And particularly I was thinking about Robert Anton Wilson. Yeah. He was a creature of his times, but he was also, where did he, where was he coming from such that he could play with all of this world that is now metastasized and is organizing people's realities left and right, you know, up and down. And one of it is that there, what he had, uh, he was a journalist and he was a historian. And for me, like the having, you know, spent time with both of those modes is really important because the journalist there, you, you can only be so cool as a journalist. And yet you're providing this incredibly useful function, you know, but you're, you're always a little, there's something grubby about it. And that grubbiness, I think, is actually kind of healthy because it involves you bringing something from here to over there. And you may be having your own agenda or whatever, but you there's some devotion towards the operations of truth that sustain some kind of social matrix of, of conviviality or awareness of what's going on in the world. And, and even if, you know, depending, whatever, you can go in different directions. I don't want to talk about too much, but well, what do you mean by grubby though? You feel like it's a grubby uh, meaning that, and I mean that, I mean, uh, totally in a good way. And of course I'm referring to grub street, which is, you know, where all the journalists were in, in uh, London. Uh, okay, uh, okay. That's, that, a, that's an that, important that, distinction. <laughs> well, no, but I did mean it in kind of the, like, there's something very unheroic. I mean, you know, it could be heroic. That's not the right word I meant. There's something about the, uh, the labor of it that is very taxing in the like, oh, you got to leak all this information, you got to pick through it, you got to be hassled, you get in people on the phone, you got to hassle them, you got to hassle them, you got to, oh, you got to hassle them some more, hassle them some more. Then you got to deal with an editor, and the editor's like, ah, oh, this sucks, I got to do this. And you got to write really, really fast, like a day, oh my God, I got a day, oh my God, oh my God, I change it. And you're changing it the last minute, like, but there's something about it that's sort of like, it's very, uh, uh, it's very non-academic. It's very non-scholarly, even though you're doing some of the same things. You're gathering information, you're telling stories, you're giving- So more workmanlike. Yeah, workmanlike. That's a better, but much better. My, you, my words are, aren't all here today. but uh, And that's a really healthy value, but it also is, is a good practice to help you move between contexts and realize that things over here may be obvious to these people, but not obvious here, and that you can, if you see that, can be a translator. And that's a very positive role, but it also helps you achieve a sort of social value that's not just about your own trip, your own worldview. It, it also shows you it shows you how to spot how full of shit people can be. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, and there's a cynicism that goes along with being being a journalist. You see how the engines of publicity work. You see how politicians lie. You see about how things get hidden, how corporations behave. And, and even if you're not a left journalist, you still develop a kind of, cyn yeah, cynicism isn't quite the right word, but a, a very a gritty sense for how reality is actually produced, where the sausage is made, that kind of thing. Which which in itself is a, is a quest for truth in its own way, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And then and then the historical frame is, is like that on another scale. It's like, look, all the stuff we're saying, a lot of the, even the same ideas, they've been there before. People have been wrestling with this. But if you if you can get good at understanding how historical context informs things, 
then I think you can go, like, go like you did with your book. You go back so that you can go forward. Or for me, like I went back to the 70s, not that far, but it's still going back to a time when a lot of people living now weren't alive. And but always in light of going forward again, so that when you come forward and you're back at these questions that we keep asking, you you have a different angle. You have an angle that's informed by actual human experience, the development of institutions, the layers of literature, the way language has changed, the way cultural identity has changed, all of these actual flows that you know the earth is doing through space as it's spinning along. There are also historical changes and, and things that the way people change. And if you can kind of like get right with that flow and sort of aim it towards our contemporary crisis, you 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 wind up with a, a something fresh. So I really encourage people to do that that to have that intellectual labor, either journalism in the in the present or historical frameworks in the past or both, as a way to like frame this this uh, this world we're in. Yeah, I think that's so. That's yeah, totally. I think the other thing also is that when you both of those things, journalism and 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 looking at things as, as a historian, are about seeing massively huge context. And when you look at things like it, what, somebody's individual story, just can't survive standing up to looking at the world from that wide of a lens. The end of our conversation unfortunately got cut off here, so I'm just going to skip straight ahead to where Eric says you can find him on the web. I'm pretty easy to find online. I'm, I, I've been at the same uh, website for decades. Uh, technosis.com, the name of my first book, T-E-C-H-G-N-O-S-I-S.com. And then Expanding Mind is found wherever podcasts are found, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever. And uh, we've been doing that for almost 10 years now. Um so it's been a it's been a long time. Uh, uh, I wouldn't recommend listening to the earliest shows because sound quality is pretty bad. But uh, uh, we've gotten up to snuff, and it's uh, it, it's a it's a fun one, you know. And it's it's motivated, I think, by a lot of the uh, same kind of issues that we've that we've been talking about here. Okay, I hope you really really enjoyed that episode. For more episodes, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And to fully go for it and hit the hallucinogenic space crystals, you can meet me at www.magic.me, that's M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, for full-on magical training. See you in class.